I'm going to read from Zechariah. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You will have you who have been hearing in these days these words by the mouth of the prophets, who spoke in the day of the foundation was laid, for the house of the Lord of hosts, that the temple might be built. For before these days there were no wages for men, nor uh, any hire for beasts. There was no peace from the enemy for whoever went out or came in, for I set all men, everyone, against his neighbor. But now I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, says the Lord of hosts. For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give its fruit, the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give her due. I will cause a remnant of these people to possess all these things. Thus saith the Lord. Walter has a knack for many things, among them picking ties. So gentlemen, uh, take note in the lobby. Walter will be exhibiting his uh, bling there. Good call, Walter. I uh, almost brought this reject tie that he had at the uh, white uh, elephant gift exchange, which I keep in my office um, for special occasions out today, but it really did not work with this outfit at all. So uh, there we go. Today's topic is one of those things you think, I'm going to talk about this, and then you get into it and you realize, there's no way I can talk about this because it's much bigger than than uh, I am and much bigger than the 30, 20, 10 minutes, whatever it is we have together today. So it's kind of like being in graduate school and thinking you're going to write a theme paper on something, a compare and contrast or something else. You get into it and realize that the guy you want to compare and contrast has written more than you could read in about 30 years. And if you're really going to get him on that subject, uh, you're stuck. And so, uh, you know, I may... I may cover too much today, I may not cover enough today, that'll be uh, for you to decide. The option always exists, however, for you to go and learn more, whatever else I might say. And the possibility always exists too for me to simply uh, address this again next week. We've been talking about church. We've been talking about what church gets to do that individuals don't. What happens when we gather corporately, why this huge investment of time and talent volunteer resources, energy, space, money, why all these things are consumed and used for the sake of bringing people together into this kind of community. And we've discovered some interesting things. I won't cover all of them, but we've, we've come to understand that it is the church's job corporately to keep alive its tradition oral and written. And what that means for us is that through the centuries, the scriptures have been preserved as records of what God has done with and for his people in interaction with his people. The records aren't perfect because they involve the human side of perception. We don't see God clearly, and yet the scriptures stand as that which point us perfectly to salvation and our God. Then we talked about the way in which through these scriptures, Christians through the centuries and churches today remember Christ in the Eucharist, 
how we remember him in communion. That is to say, he commands us as oft as we drink of the cup and eat of the bread, we, we memorialize his death until he comes. So the very act of, of by which he was able to save us becomes ingrained and remembered and more than that, reenacted. We talked about how the church has a particular claim to witness and to proclamation. That is to say, we continue to be witnesses of the active work of the Holy Spirit and Christ in our lives in today's times, and we continue to be proclaimers of the word, not only the message uh, which has been brought through the ages, but the message that is reflective of the experience we have of a living God today. And in the proclamation, we have the sense of a cohesion that we are uh, a sort of structure that we get to use as we proclaim. And that structure might be understood as orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is not something individuals get to arrive at because an individual does not have the same perspective, does not have the same way of verifying, does not have the uh, multiplication of subjective experience to declare something that uh, orthodox, that has to take place corporately. And so in orthodoxy, heterodoxy, and heresy, we talked about how the church alone possesses the right to state what is normative in its belief cycles for its people and to define itself at least partially in those terms. So we've come through uh, several different lessons. We've talked about uh, life-changing experiences those things that we get to experience, not everybody maybe, but most of us experience at one time or another. Confession and repentance and how important that is in the life of a church. Baptism. The Lord's Supper. We talked about healing. We talk, talked about um, ordination. We talked about uh, Confession. I think I covered, well, I thought I, what else did I miss here? Anyway, we covered seven. Marriage, thank you. Marriage, we covered seven of these in the last uh, three sermons. So now today I'm going kind of a different direction. I'm not officially leaving the church series, but sort of. I'm not going to be in the same vein. I'm going to talk about what it means maybe as a church to be remnant. Now I want to get to the word right away because at least in my growing up experience, there's a corrective I would offer. And for many of you, the corrective is unnecessary, thank God. For some of you, it might be necessary. For many of you, it's not necessary. And if it's not necessary, take it for what it is. If you converted as an adult to the Seventh-day Adventist church, this corrective is probably not for you. If you inherited Adventism as second or third generation and you received Adventism through the 70s or 80s, this correction will probably be very helpful to you. Am I clear on that? In other words, if you joined this church as an adult, you were persuaded that the message of the Adventist church had something relevant to speak into your life and to the lives of the world around you. You were excited because there was a cohesion to the truths you received and understood. And depending on the presenter and the evangelist, you got a picture of God's last day church poised to proclaim his love and his grace to a world in a time that would be troubled. 
And that's a powerful thing, and I have no interest in, in, in uh, removing any of that from you. But for those of us who grew up in my era, the remnant was presented in a sort of stilted way, and it was connected not to what I'm going to connect it to today. It was connected to triumphalism. Now there's one of those big words, but let's break it down. Triumphant or triumph, that is to say victory. The remnant concept was connected to the church victorious. It was connected to the idea of superiority. And that is, I think, I was done a disservice, I think, as a teen and young adult to be given the doctrine in that framework. Because as I've looked at scripture and I look at where this word comes from and I look at what it means collectively for us to be uh, remnant, I I don't really get that. I don't get that. The way it was formulated in my youth and young adulthood, childhood even, but I I probably didn't have a good grasp at nine years old of what this was all about. It was connected through a series of what we called proof texts. The idea was that we could identify the true church of the last days by these texts. Now, interestingly enough, other denominations were engaging in the same thing. So I'm not pointing a finger at us and saying, wow, bad Adventists. No, no, no. It was just something I think we had to go through in the process of growing up. Unfortunately, some people still live there, but I think there's a way for us together to grow beyond the limitations of a sort of proof text approach to Scripture because the Scripture always has a context, doesn't it? Where we draw a text from always has a text surrounding it that sort of helps us understand where that text fits and what what it's really talking about. Are you with me? Was that too shocking for some? Okay, good. We're all right so far. Now, the way it was presented in my youth went something like this. What you have is a last day church out of the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. And in those prophecies, it talks about two opposing forces. The beast force and the God force. And in all of this, God is is seeking a people. And the way it was presented was that this would be a people that could stand alone without God, without the Holy Spirit, and still live lives of perfect righteousness. Now that was the first place where I began to uh, encounter difficulty and to struggle with that particular part of the remnant message. In addition, this people would be identified as those who had the faith of Jesus, and this, which, which Revelation 19 identifies as the spirit of prophecy, and they keep the commandments of God. Does this sound familiar to you? It should. Revelation 12, okay. So these two things were connected and still are. If you read the uh, uh, 28 fundamental beliefs of the church, these two notions still, still find a place in Doctrine of the Remnant, although I think the majority of the statement is very nicely written and much more humbly written than than was such when I was a child, um, just to to let you know. But the idea was that if you had um, the faith of Jesus, which was the spirit of prophecy, and you kept the commandments, that was a signifier of the remnant church. Oh, now wait a minute. The commandments involve one, two, three... 
5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, right? No, they involve the fourth commandment, which says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The seventh day is the Sabbath. Therefore, one of the signifiers of remnant has to be that they are Sabbatarian, that they keep the seventh day Sabbath. The second thing was, have the testimony of Jesus or this, the, the, yeah, which is the spirit of prophecy. That spirit of prophecy thing was very convenient in scripture because there was a woman who, who had the prophetic gift who was most influential in the formation of our church and did so much to keep the brethren on the straight and narrow, or she sure tried Letters are contained in volume in the white estate and in the testimonies and other places. By the way, you do know those were written to specific individuals for specific purposes. Okay. So she did her best, but she became known as the spirit of prophecy and more particularly the red books by the time of the 70s when I was growing up. The red books were the spirit of prophecy. How many experienced that reality? You go to Sabbath school class and somebody would talk about what the spirit of prophecy says. That the problem was that while we identified Ellen White as having the spiritual gift of prophecy, that is to say possessing the prophetic gift and acting in a prophetic role and way in the formation and early years of our church and through her writings. You're aware of that. You understand that. Well, we did that. She herself was not the spirit of prophecy. There's only one spirit. Right? So this sort of conveniently became coalesced into this idea that we had Ellen White and we had the Sabbath and therefore we were God's remnant church. And the net effect was to make us arrogant, triumphant, triumphalistic and the net effect was to make us feel falsely secure the net effect was sectarian that is to say even well I don't want to use cultish but sectarian because what it meant was that if you belonged to the right club if you kept the right day and you were with the church that had the true prophet you were home free you were part of the remnant, you would receive the seal of God, etc., etc. How many of you sort of experienced the teaching that way growing up? Hands high, please. Okay, good. So I'm talking to a few of you anyway. Well, a little deeper dig, and you realize that there's definitely a biblical remnant spoken of. Definitely. And there's definitely a last day remnant that the Bible speaks of. But I think if we look at the broader context of what being remnant is all about, we'll be able to remove it from the sort of triumphalism of my own upbringing. We'll be able to position it, I think, where it belongs, and it will open us up to the reality of God's greater kingdom. And that's, that's the joy of the gospel. I want to start, if you'll forgive me, I'm just going to use some notes. And this is something you can do, by the way, so easy to do. It's not the realm of the pastor to do this. It is the realm of anybody who wants to search. This is a printout of all the places that remnant appears in the New International Version of the Bible. Okay? That's what I'm preaching from. And I just went to BibleGateway.com and punched in remnant and printed this thing out. Easy as can be. 
Okay? Now the hard part is sifting through all the texts and kind of seeing what they're talking about and where they fit in history and some of those sorts of things. But any one of you could do a single word study like that, pull this up and see what it is. Now, that reminds me. Some people in the Adventist church through the years, I just got to throw this little jab or left hook or something out, have said that the NIV is not a suitable Bible. Only the King James is suitable. And that's because if you punch the King James version in and print this off, you'll get a few references that contain the word remnant in the New Testament that aren't contained in the New International Version. What the New International Version will use is the rest of or the remainder of, which is an equivalent to remnant, but it doesn't actually use that word. So in the New International Version, you won't find the word remnant in Revelation. That is in the King James Version. But nonetheless, commentators widely agree that the translation, rest of or remainder of or however they phrased it in the, in the uh, New International Version, is referent to a remainder or a remnant. So it, it, it's just a matter of semantics. It doesn't make the translation intrinsically inferior. It just means that if you're used to proof texting a point of view by a keyword, the King James is more convenient for us when it comes to that particular uh, process. Clear enough? Okay, good. Oh, you are such a smart group. What would I do with a, a group that wasn't as smart as you? Genesis 45.7. I'm just going to blitz through a few of these so that you can get a flavor of remnant in Scripture. Now, 45, uh, Genesis 45 is set thus. Joseph is in Egypt. He is second in command to Pharaoh. We are in the midst of seven lean years that have followed seven years of plenty. Pharaoh is tantamount to God and Joseph is exalted above all others and his family shows up to petition for food because Canaan is dry. Canaan is dry. And Joseph has put his brothers through their paces to see if they're the same men or changed men from the ones who sold him into slavery. And now Joseph in chapter 45 is going to reveal himself. He's going to make himself known to his brothers in this most emotional of outpourings, this incredible uh, moment. And I'm reading uh, in verse 7. Actually, I'm going to start a little earlier. I'm going to start in verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been a famine in the land and for the next five there will not be any plowing and reaping. Verse 7. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve you for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Isn't that a wonderful passage? Here you are, this endangered, embattled little group struggling for your lives in the arid landscape hoping that you can make it in this famine. And because of your act of treachery 
and God's greatness and goodness and his redemptive power. He's taken even that act of uh, treachery and because he knew he's brought me to this place that a remnant of God's people might be preserved. We're talking second generation. The promise had gone first to whom? Abraham. Then to Isaac. Then to Jacob. And Joseph was one of Jacob's sons. This is early, early, early in salvation history that we are talking about a remnant, a remainder that's going to survive this famine, a a group that's going to make it through. Well, the next passage I'd like you to look at is in 2 Kings. Second Kings 19, it's used in several places, particularly at the end, and this is the story of Hezekiah. Many of you remember his prayer, his arrogance and his illness and his pr- prayer. We're going to look at verses 30 and 31, and it's in the midst of a poem, starting in 29. This will be a sign to you, O Hezekiah, This year you will eat what grows by itself, and the second year what springs from that, but in the third year sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Once more a remnant of the house of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Well, this was a trying time. This was in the 700s AD and Syria was knocking on the door of Israel and would conquer it. And God is talking about the difficulties of their experience and saying that from that experience fruit would drop that would bear root and finally fruit itself. That there would be a remnant preserved in Israel. That all would not be lost that God would continue his mission and his purpose in a people, moving them through time, moving them through space and experience, being their God. Ezra. Ezra is uh, in this time as well, maybe a little bit later than uh, what is written there, but Ezra and Nehemiah, the author of Ezra and Nehemiah probably also wrote um, the Chronicles. First and Second Chronicles. They share common themes and common purposes and probably a common timeline. So Ezra is right in this same era and we find this word remnant appearing in Ezra 9 quite a bit. The story was this. They had returned to Jerusalem after the captivity at the order first of, I think it was Darius, then Xerxes, then Artaxerxes. I mean, it took quite a bit of time for them to accomplish all this. They were going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And what happened was, as the Israelites got back there, other peoples had come into the land and they began to marry the daughters of the tribes surrounding them and the sons of the tribes surrounding them. And intermarriage, well, had a whole different context then than now. I think our forefathers did something funny with that too. They made it about race and they made it about culture when in fact it was about religion. And so what was happening was as someone married from another clan, another people, they were adopting false gods. They were betraying the God 
who they knew and loved. You see, it was possible to convert to Judaism. Did you know that? You could be baptized, believe it or not, circumcised, and you could be educated in the way of the Jewish people, and you could convert. It was possible. If you converted and became a Jew, no differentiation was made between you and any other Jew. Were you aware of that? No differentiation was made. You were Jewish at that point. You could become Jewish in that, in that manner. Think of Rahab. She converted, basically. Yes, God saved her, but she converted. She became part of the Jewish people and part of the line of Jesus as we read the genealogies. So we get to this, this intermarriage thing. And there's 9 and 10 and 11 of Ezra just full of this. And... Uh, it's very interesting reading and a little disturbing too, but the essence of it was they were marrying people outside the group and from that process were entering into idolatry and Israel was, was becoming corrupt. The remnant itself that had returned to Israel was becoming corrupt through this intermarriage. And Ezra is praying to the Lord. He's torn his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and he's, we've got to be very careful with this word in the modern day and age, he's prostrated himself. Okay? That's not prostate. Prostrated himself, laying flat on the ground, face down before the Lord. That's a common speaker's mistake. And he prostrated himself. Okay. So he's, he's praying to God in, in chapter 9, and we read these words in 13, 14, and 15. What has happened to us is a result of your evil deeds and our great guilt, and yet our God, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we again break your commands and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. Do you hear the triumphalism? No. This is a broken, nearly extinct, almost extinguished, now corrupt and sin-ridden and guilty group of people. And make no mistake, they are God's people. Right? When we read in the Old Testament over and over again. The remnant is a group who survives. It's a group who endures. It's a group that God brings through tremendous difficulty or tribulation or brokenness, times of sin and loss. It is a group that he has called his own and redeemed and a group from which he will regather and rebuild. Noah and his family were a remnant on earth. 
Today that word doesn't have terribly uh, positive consequences unless you get lucky, right? You go to the carpet store to get a remnant. Sometimes you get lucky and it's a beautiful piece of carpet for 80 bucks and you've got, you know, fits the room perfectly. I've never had that experience. I always find the stuff that's two shades off and a foot short of what I need it to be and twice the price I wanted it to be. So don't shop with me for remnants. But uh, that's what a remnant is. It's a leftover cut off from the whole after everything is said and done. And that's going to be the building premise. Looks like we are going to go to next week. That is going to be the building premise for where we go from here. Because Paul talks about a remnant in Romans 9, Romans 7. Paul talks about that. Revelation speaks of a remnant. And there is a biblical remnant. And I want to talk to you about what the church gets to do as it embraces that remnant vision, particularly the Adventist church, that no other church make it to do. For the Adventist church, our understanding of remnant is deeply connected to Revelation 14 and the three angels' message. And that is a piece that is a denomination we have fairly uniquely embraced. So, I have for those of you who want, want that peace, it's coming. And for those of you who are tracking with this uh, sort of corrective peace from my own childhood and many of your childhoods, it's coming. And we'll get together next week, don't miss it, and uh, talk more about what Remnant gets to accomplish as church together that we can't do for ourselves. Bear in mind, friends, just with this thought, in case you can't come back next week, Remnant is never an individual. It is always a group. And only church in today's context, spiritual Israel, only that gets to fulfill that role. So God bless us, the leftover, the stragglers, those cut off from the main, those who will endure to the end, God bless us. You have called us forth to be your people, with purpose and with power and with grace. Send us forth from this place so blessed in Jesus' name. Amen.